hell yeah. I got nothing going on. Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. Greetings from Mutiny Radio, where there seem to be technical difficulties every single week. I'm not going to mask my anger right now. However, I'm feeling pretty frustrated. Not the best way to start a show. However, there's plenty of more valid things to be angry about. Anyway, I was planning to start the show with Tracy Chapman. That's not Tracy Chapman. We'll be getting that sung on as soon as we can here. Thanks so much for listening. I do want to provide a trigger warning for folks. This is a news and current events program. We'll be talking about things that are happening in the world that are deeply troubling. So what going to put that uh, first before we begin the program and going through some news stories um, and hopefully playing some music that I've selected before the show. Hopefully that will that will happen. Thanks again so much for listening. If it's your first time listening, thank you for listening. If you listened before, thanks for tuning in again. Do appreciate listenership. And appreciate having a space, as imperfect as it may be, to be able to provide content that seems to be censored from a lot of places. And that will be one story we'll be getting to, which where Facebook uh, randomly seemed to just uh, delete several pages that are critical of law enforcement. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, right? They seem to be okay with allowing uh, Nazi apologists on Facebook, but however, anyone who wants to question the dangers of law enforcement, those pages have been removed. Not all of them, many of them. So we'll be getting into that story. And that's deeply upsetting, and it's also just the trajectory for how things have been going. Um, I'll say it before on the show, I've, I, of course, would love to be wrong about a lot of these things. I would love to just be, oh, just, I'm just paranoid, or oh, I'm unfortunately... We're seeing more and more uh, folks being censored, and uh, gosh, I really do hope I can play this song. It's uh, Tell It Like It Is by Tracy Chapman. I was trying to play it a few weeks ago, too, and also had some difficulty here. We have a call. Let's see if this has anything to do with what's, what's going on. Hello, Mutiny Radio. Hey, Roman. This is Andy. Hi. Thanks for calling in. <laughs> um, so I am calling to talk about an amazing event going on in Santa Cruz today that some folks may not know about. Yes, um, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you um, for having me talk about this. Um, so there is an event going on at UCSC today, which I know people listening in the Bay Area, but if anyone has the time to come down um, at UCSC in the Redwood Lounge, from three to six o'clock, um, some fellow organizers are. We're doing an event. Um, event from Sears. It's um, talking about uh, SESTA, sex work, and censorship, and the impact that SESTA has had on um, the larger sex work community as a whole. Also, like talking about increased policing efforts um, that are going on under this administration and how that's impacting um, sex workers that use online platforms as well as increased like policing of people that do street-based work wow that sounds like a very important um event to happen i'm glad that it's happening yeah um it, it definitely is important um there has been just a lot of increased legislation tra- uh, targeting sex workers and that obviously disproportionately impacts people that live on the like margins of society and exist at like intersections of oppression. So obviously like trans people, trans people of color, people with disabilities are at the greatest, you know, risk of violence yes. when they don't have access to online platforms to do advertising for sexual services. Right. 
um, a lot of those people are being pushed on the street, and um, there's also like new, you know, increased in San Francisco. So pushing this legislation of SESTA, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which has been, you know, the wording's been co-opted. Um, so it is targeting uh, people that are doing a gentle forms of sex work mm-hmm. um, as well and pushing people onto the street and they're getting rounded up by police, putting, being put in greater danger of violence um, and facing higher rates of arrest. They're right. definitely trying to you know, uh, networks of community support for sex workers in places where there might not be um, as much in-person organizing and mobilization. Yeah. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I saw on the, the invite as well, or the event information that you were also, you know, asking for folks to write in a few sentences about their experiences that can be shared. And I feel like there's just been, I've heard so much from from folks I know about how SESTA-FOSTA has just been I don't even have the language for it, but just how horrific it's been. Yeah, um, especially in areas where there there isn't, like, in-person community organizing around sex work. Like, in the, you know, Bay Area, there is such a privilege of having in-person, like, networks to form when Mm -hmm. legislation like this goes through um, in terms of, like, finding new platforms, in terms of creating safeguards and, like, client shares and stuff like that, but um, in places that are more, like, spread out and don't have those resources, um, you know, the impact of this legislation is a lot greater. People don't know where to advertise now. People don't have anyone they can talk to about the violence they're facing or how clients are now, put, you know, um, putting more pressure on providers to lower their prices or mm. threatening them. Um, so, <sighs> yeah. Ugh. Well, uh, th- thank you for calling in and, and sharing about this event. And I know you also you, know, you work with the uh, St. James Infirmary, so also wanting to give them a plug and to send lots of love to all the folks out at St. James. Yeah, uh, donations are always always welcome. Volunteers, um, and also just even sharing news um, that you see going, you know, relating to increased uh, like sex sex workers is really helpful because. You know, there is such a shroud of silence and secrecy around this industry and about people who do this type of work. Um, And as we're seeing in, like, this resistance movement, kind of the veil being lifted under these dire circumstances. um, So if people have the privilege to speak out, have the resources to share... um, contribute funds to St. James, that's also super appreciated. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for, for spreading the word. Awesome. Always a pleasure, Roman. Likewise. Thanks for calling in. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, a big thank you to Andy for calling in and sharing information about this event, which is happening later today, uh, starting around 3 p.m. And again, I will read the information. Uh, The UC Student Workers Union, PRISM, and the GSA present Sex Work, SESTA, Censorship, Save Us from Saviors. And it's again, it's today, Friday, October 12th, 3 to 6 p.m. in the Redwood Lounge, UCSE, Corey Plaza. And uh, they say they welcome Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, who's an author, educator, um, on the Dresser podcast host to discuss the neoliberal utilization of anti-trafficking policies and their harms imposed on sex working communities. And they also welcome the St. James Infirmary, which is a peer-based health clinic for sex workers, for an introduction to sex work training presentation. 
Um, again, that's happening today. And if you would like to contribute to St. James Infirmary, please do so. And I will be providing some more information. You also can just type it in St. James Infirmary and you'll be directed to their page to find more information about how to support this amazing clinic. And previously on the show, we've had guests in who work at St. James and are affiliated with St. James and sending lots of love and support out to the folks who actually help people instead of people who just pass laws without knowing what those laws are. Okay. Again, big thank you to Andy for calling in. That's a good way of starting off the show. And I appreciate that. And there are so many folks out there doing a lot of great things. I haven't had too many guests on the show recently. It's been uh, not necessarily by choice, just how things have kind of turned out. However, we will be having some guests in in the upcoming week, so very grateful for that. Wanting to get to an article I didn't quite get to last week. Last week was a shorter episode of sorts. It was still the two hours, so it wasn't really short by any means. However, started it a bit late. It's a, it's a recurring theme sometimes for the show. We did have, we did play a lot of information, and one, there was an article that was written Men, not men, I want to say many years ago. It was written in 2005, so it was definitely a while ago. However, a lot of it still holds true, and that's in regards to the Supreme Court. And Howard Zinn, who's unfortunately no longer with us, wrote a piece, Don't Despair About the Supreme Court. And a lot of this goes into just the history of the Supreme Court, the decisions they've made, and also just this idea that uh, obviously there's someone who's super fucking horrible. There's a few. Gonna call. I'm already angry, and it's not even 1215. <laughs> there are people on this on this court who are fucking reprehensible and shouldn't be in control of anyone else's bodies. That's, it's, we all know that. And there's more people now. And it, this article really goes into just why is this, why does this even exist in the first place? And it's not. It's yeah. I'll let the article speak for itself. And also the fact that it came out 13 years ago. So it came out on October 21st, too. So it's almost exactly 13 years ago. And so much of it's still true. And so many horrible decisions have been made by the Supreme Court since then. So there's like they are upholding the, the ban on travel to and from countries with uh, where, there's a, where there's a large Muslim population, for instance, which is just fucking ridiculous. Personally, uh, I'm for a world without borders. I think a lot of us are. And this idea of, you know, restricting travel is so heinous and ridiculous and harmful and terrible. And again, I know this is the, this medium, this radio medium is about language and it's audio and that's what we can use to describe what's happening. And I have a lot of feelings and emotions about things. And sometimes the language, it's difficult to find accurate language and it's an uncensored show. So I could swear all I want. However, that doesn't even begin to describe just the atrocities and the horrors that people in positions of power inflict on the rest of us with their ideas of these fake-ass borders and their stupid laws. <sighs> okay, so this article was published in The Progressive, and if you'd like to read it online, and that also brings me to a, another slight note. For a long time, I've been wanting to have transcripts of the show so folks who are unable to hear can read it, and then that, in addition, would like to be able to have translations into other languages. This is, I'm speaking it aloud. We, the funding I have here, I'm grateful for the folks who help fund it. That covers the the dues and then maybe a little bit after that. So initially I would like to get to the point, initially. Additionally, I'd like to get to the point where we could hire folks to help put the word out to more and more people on more platforms and more languages and more ways to more people. So speaking that aloud, and perhaps that will happen, I would love for that to happen. This comes from The Progressive. You can find it at progressive.org. Howard's in. Don't despair about the Supreme Court. It would be naive to depend on the Supreme Court to defend the rights of poor people, women, people of color, dissenters of all kinds. And again, this came out on October 21st, 2005. 
John Roberts sailed through his confirmation hearings as the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court with enthusiastic Republican support and a few weak mutterings of oppositions by the Democrats. Geez, why does that sound familiar? Then, after the far right deemed Harriet Myers insufficiently, I forgot about her, insufficiently uh, doctrinaire, doctrinaire, Bush nominated arch-conservative Samuel Alito to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. This has caused a certain consternation among people we affectionately term the left. I can understand that sinking feeling. Even listening to pieces of Robert's confirmation hearings was enough to induce despair. The joking with the candidate, the obvious signs that, whether Democrats or Republicans, these are all members of the same exclusive club. Robert's proper credentials, his quote-unquote nice guy demeanor, his insistence to the Judiciary Committee that he is not an ideologue, can you imagine anyone, even Robert Bork or Dick Cheney, admitting, admitting that he is an ideologue, were clearly more important than his views on equality, justice, the rights of defendants, the war powers of the president. At one point in the hearings, the New York Times reported Roberts summed up his philosophy. He had been asked, are you going to be on the side of the little guy? Would any candidate admit that he was on the side of the big guy? Presumably, serious hearings bring out idiot questions. Roberts replied, if the Constitution says that the little guy should win, the little guy is going to win in court before me. But if the Constitution says that the big guy should win, well, then the big guy is going to win, because my obligation is to the Constitution. If the Constitution is the holy test, then a justice should abide by its provision in Article 6, that not only the Constitution itself, but all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Sorry, that sentence right there is probably more quoting of the Constitution than I've... Okay, that's a lot. This includes the Geneva Convention of 1949, which the United States signed and which insists that prisoners of war must be granted the rights of due process. A district court judge in 2004 ruled that the detainees held in Guantanamo for years without trial were protected by the Geneva Convention and deserved due process. Roberts and two colleagues of the Court of Appeals overruled this. There is enormous hypocrisy surrounding the pious veneration of the Constitution and the rule of law. The Constitution, like the Bible, is infinitely flexible and is used to serve the political needs of the moment. When the country was in economic crisis and turmoil in the 30s and capitalism needed to be saved from the anger of the poor and hungry and unemployed, the Supreme Court was willing to stretch to infinity the constitutional right of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. It decided that the national government, desperate to regulate farm production, could tell a family farmer what to grow on his tiny piece of land. When the Constitution gets in the way of war, it is ignored. When the Supreme Court was faced during Vietnam with a suit by soldiers refusing to go, claiming that there had been no declaration of war by Congress as the Constitution required, the soldiers could not get four Supreme Court justices to agree to even hear the case. When, during World War I, Congress ignored the First Amendment's right to free speech by passing legislation to prohibit criticism of the war, the imprisonment of dissenters under this law was upheld unanimously by the Supreme Court, which included two presumably liberal and learned justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis. It would be naive to depend on the Supreme Court to defend the rights of poor people, women, people of color, dissenters of all kinds. Those rights only come alive when citizens organize, protest, demonstrate, strike, boycott, rebel, and violate the law in order to uphold justice. The distinction between law and justice is ignored by all those senators, Democrats and Republicans, who solemnly invoke as their highest concern the rule of law. The law can be just, it can be unjust, 
It does not deserve to inherit the ultimate authority of the divine right of the king. The Constitution gave no rights to working people, no right to work less than 12 hours a day, no right to a living wage, no right to safe working conditions. Workers had to organize, go on strike, defy the law, the courts, the police, create a great movement which won the eight-hour day and caused such commotion that Congress was forced to pass a minimum wage law and Social Security and unemployment insurance. The Brown decision on school desegregation did not come from a sudden realization of the Supreme Court that this is what the 14th Amendment called for. After all, it was the same 14th Amendment that had been cited in the Plessy case upholding racial segregation. It was the initiative of brave families in the South, along with the fear by the government obsessed with the Cold War, that it was losing the hearts and minds of quote-unquote colored people all over the world, that brought a sudden enlightenment to the court. The Supreme Court in 1883 had interpreted the 14th Amendment so that non-governmental institutions, hotels, restaurants, etc. could bar black people. But after the sit-ins and arrests of thousands of black people in the South in the early 60s, the right to public accommodations was quietly given constitutional sanction in 1964 by the court. It has now interpreted the Interstate Commerce Clause, whose wording has not changed since 1787, to mean that all places of public accommodation could be regulated by congressional action and be prohibited from discriminating. Soon this would include barbershops, and I suggest it takes an ingenious interpretation to include barbershops in interstate commerce. The right of a person, I'm going to change that, to an abortion uh, did not depend on the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. It was won before the decision all over the country by grassroots agitation that, for that forced states to recognize the right. If the American people, who by a great majority favor that right, insist on it, act on it, no Supreme Court decision can take it away. The rights of working people, of women, of black people have not depended on the decisions of the courts, and I'm going to add in queer folks as well. Like the other branches of the political system, the courts have recognized these rights only after citizens have engaged in direct action powerful enough to win these rights for themselves. This is not to say that we should ignore the courts or the electoral campaigns. It can be useful to get one person rather than another on the Supreme Court, or in the presidency, or in Congress. The courts, win or lose, can be used to dramatize issues. On St. Patrick's Day, 2003, on the eve of the invasion of Iraq, four anti-war activists poured their own blood around a vestibule of a military recruiting center near Ithaca, New York, and were arrested. Charged in state court with criminal mischief and trespassing, charges well suited to the American invaders of a certain Mideastern country, the St. Patrick's Four spoke their hearts to the jury. Peter DeMott, a Vietnam veteran, described the brutality of war. Danny Burns explained why invading Iraq would violate the UN Charter, a treaty signed by the United States. Claire Grady spoke of her moral obligations as a Christian. Teresa Grady spoke to the jury as a mother, telling them that the women and children were the chief victims of war, and that she cared about the children of Iraq. Nine of the twelve jurors voted to acquit them, and the jury declared a hung jury. When the federal government retried them on felony conspiracy charges, a jury in September acquitted them of those and convicted them on lesser charges. Still, knowing the nature of the political and judicial system in, of this country, its inherent bias against the poor, against people of color, against dissidents, we cannot become dependent on the courts or on the political leadership. Our culture, the media, the educational system tries to crowd out of our political consciousness everything except who will be elected president and who will be on the Supreme Court, as if these are the most important decisions we make. They are not. 
They deflect us from the most important job citizens have, which is to bring democracy alive by organizing, protesting, engaging in acts of civil disobedience that shake up the system. That is why Cindy Sheehan's dramatic stand in Crawford, Texas, leading to 1,600 anti-war vigils around the country involving 100,000 people, is more crucial to the future of American democracy than the mock hearings on Justice Roberts or the ones to come on Judge Alito. That is why the St. Patrick's Four need to be supported and emulated. That is why the GIs refusing to return to Iraq, the families of soldiers calling for withdrawal from the war, are so important. That is why the huge peace march in Washington on September 24th bodes well. Let us not be disconsolate over the increasing control of the court system by the right wing. The courts have never been on the side of justice, only moving a few degrees one way or the other, unless pushed by the people. The words engraved in the marble of the Supreme Court, equal justice before the law, have always been a sham. No Supreme Court liberal or conservative, will stop the war in Iraq or redistribute the wealth of this country or establish free medical care for every human being. Such fundamental change will depend, the experience of the past suggests, on the actions of an aroused citizenry, demanding that the promise of the Declaration of Independence an equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness be fulfilled. And again, this was Howard Zinn, who wrote this piece in 2005, 13 years ago. And it's still true. If our tech situation here was a little bit uh, more on point today, I'd be playing some music right now. And in the meantime, uh, we'll see what we can do. I will, I'll see if I can play some. It might not sound as, as uh, clear as uh, I had intended. However, we'll, um, we'll see what we can do. Good as none. Mm. 
It's the only thing that's free We must take it where it's found Pretty soon it may be Says, hey, love, declared for days to come, is as good as none. Tracy Chapman with a live version of If Not Now. And we'll be playing some more music throughout the show. Again, it's going to be a little bit low tech here today. Hope you appreciate that. Or I hope it goes well for you. Again, thank you for listening. (sighs) Okay. So lots of folks are on strike. Lost track of how many people we're going to try to get to as much as we can today, as well as plenty of other stories. And this comes out of San Francisco, and it's happening across the country. San Francisco Marriott Hotel Strike, far from resolution. And this is the California Report from KQED. And this came, this was published on October 11th by Ted Goldberg. The strike of thousands of workers at seven Marriott hotels in San Francisco, a work action tied to walkouts against the company throughout the Bay Area and the rest of the country, is not expected to end anytime soon, according to a top union official. A week into our strike, this fight remains far from resolution, said Anand Singh, president of United Here Local 2. The San Francisco strike, involving some 2,300 housekeepers, kitchen workers, bartenders, bellmen, and others, began Thursday, October 4th. Marriott workers, represented by Unite Here in San Jose, Oakland, and other several cities across the nation, have also walked off the job. Months of bargaining with Marriott got us nowhere on key issues, including a livable income and affordable health care, safe workloads, and job security, Singh said in an email. We're ready to strike until hotel workles... (laughs) I'm making up words now. I don't think workles are a thing. (sighs) (laughs) We're ready to strike until hotel workers no longer have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet, Singh said. A union organizer said the two says the two sides plan to meet in the coming days for the first time since the San Francisco strike began. Marriott has consistently said that it's disappointed in the union strike. <sighs> I'm rolling my eyes. You can't see it, but I'm rolling my eyes at the company. That its hotels are open during the walkout and that it will keep providing excellent service to guests. But a Marriott spokesperson has yet to respond to questions about the hotel chain's concerns that the strike is the strike in the heart of San Francisco's tourist economy could last a long time. The pressure is rising on the company, said UC Berkeley professor Harley Shaikin, who specializes in labor issues and has been following the dispute. 
There's always the possibility that the strike like this could go on much longer than expected, Shaikin said. The San Francisco workers have been without a contract since August 15th, when the union's five-year agreement with Marriott ended. During the last contract, the median income for Marriott hotel workers in the city was $44,000, according to union officials. Unite Here Local 2 and Marriott have declined to provide specifics on their contract proposals. The union says it's asking for a livable income. Our wages haven't kept pace with the cost of living or with Marriott's profits, Singh said. We're asking for a big step up because that's what hotel workers need. Unite Here says it's also pushing for relief from unsafe workloads and no changes to its workers' healthcare plans, among other things. The San Francisco strike involves workers at the Courtyard by Marriott Downtown, the Marriott Marquis, the Marriott Union Square, the Palace Hotel, the St. Regis, the W, and the Westin St. Francis. So again, you can find this at KQED. Also speaking of KQED, uh, there's more updates on the Mario Woods suit. And um, so, folks, um, we, we've spoken about it on the show previously. And thank you to Lamisha Irizarry for also bringing this to my attention. And this happens to be right, um, uh, if you go to the KQD website, this is right below the, the article about the strikes. So we're going to go in, in this order. Sometimes I plan the show a little bit more in advance and have different segues and other times as today, it's, we kind of just piece it together as we go, which is kind of what life's like about, we can, we can only plan so much and then got to take things as they come. And so Judge Sight's newly unsealed video allows Mario Woodsuit to go to trial. And they contain a video of the shooting, and I'm not going to play the audio. It's, it's extremely disturbing. Um, folks um, are able to listen to it and or, and or to see it. Um, please go to kqd.org. Newly unsealed video of the 2015 San Francisco police shooting of Mario Woods cast doubt on officer statements about the deadly encounter, a federal judge said in a Tuesday ruling. U.S. District Court Judge William Oreck ordered that a lawsuit by Woods' mother can proceed to trial. The video obtained, obtained by KQD was taken by a former Muni bus driver on December 2nd, 2015. It sheds new light on several aspects of the shooting that contributed to launching an era of turmoil and reform for the San Francisco Police Department. The footage begins just over a minute before five SFPD officers open fire on Woods, shooting him 21 times. Officer Brandon Thompson can be heard on the recording telling his partner, Officer Charles August, to back away from Woods as both officers trail him onto Keith Street, near the intersection of 3rd Street and Fitzgerald Avenue in the Bayview District. Thompson and August had approached Woods several minutes before the video's beginning, suspecting him of a stabbing earlier that afternoon. According to August's deposition testimony, Woods was holding a knife and told the officers he wasn't going with them. More officers arrived quickly and can be seen on the video surrounding Woods in a semicircle where his back, with his back to a wall on Keith Street. The video shows Woods fall at one point as officers fired rubber, rubber projectiles at him. Videos show that the less, less lethal rounds caused Woods to drop t- to the ground on all fours, Judge William Oreck wrote in his ruling, citing the bus driver's video. After seven seconds on all fours and then his knees, he stood up. Oreck noted several of the officers' accounts in depositions and official statements after the shooting that said Woods then began to walk quickly toward August after the officer sidestepped into his path. Videos cast doubt on on the officer accounts that Woods was moving quickly or speeding up when officers shot him. They seemed to show him take four steps, four slow steps with his right shoulder up against the building, walking with a heavy limp, Oreck wrote, citing the bus driver's footage. The knife was in Woods' right hand on the building side. 
The newly unsealed video provides perhaps the clearest view of the moment that August, as well as officers Nicholas Cuevas, Winston Sato, Antonio Santos, and Scott Phillips started to fire. It appears to show more space between August and Woods at the moment gunshots are heard compared to videos from other perspectives. And according to attorneys representing Woods' mother, Gwendolyn Woods, it shows Woods start to move away from August just before he shot. The video appears to definitely disprove statements than uh, Police Chief Greg Sir made days after the shooting that Woods raised the knife toward August before the officers fired. But neither Sir nor anyone else investigating the shooting were aware of the bus driver's video until more than a year later. The driver said in deposition testimony that he feared repercussions and kept the video to himself until the summer of 2017 when he provided a copy to the city. The city attorney's office waited as long as it could to turn the video over to plaintiff's attorneys according to depositions in the case because the muni operator who recorded the shooting wanted to change jobs and no longer drive a bus in the baby district before his footage became public. Oric dismissed the parts of the lawsuit that relied on federal law, citing the relatively recent U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Kisela v. Hughes, a seminal case that expanded police officers' legal immunity when confronting suspects carrying knives. Where the judge ruled a jury should have the final say on state law-based negligence and wrongful death claims. Viewing the evidence in the light of most favorable to the plaintiff, a jury could conclude that officers should have attempted more alternatives before shooting Woods or wrote. Unique to this case, there were well over a dozen officers on the scene, with at least nine in the direct vicinity of Woods. Each officer had multiple additional weapons, including wooden batons. Given Woods' size, 5'9 and 156 pounds, a reasonable jury could find that police could and should have overpowered him rather than killing him, the judge wrote. The city had sought a ruling that would find the shooting a reasonable, legally justified use of force before the case ever made it to trial. Videos show that officers significantly outnumbered Woods, who had neither brandished the knife nor made verbal threats, but rather made statements a fact finder could infer were suicidal, Oric wrote. A jury could find that Woods was injured and moving slowly at the moment officers shot him. These facts could be sufficient to allow a jury to conclude that by escalating to deadly force in such a situation, officers acted with reckless disregard for Woods' rights, the judge wrote. Oric noted the city's argument arguments that could show the officer's use of force was tied to legitimate concerns about the safety of officers and bystanders. This is a question properly resolved by a jury, he wrote. The trial is scheduled for April 1st, 2019. So again, you can find this as well as the video at kqed.org. Sending lots of love and support to Gwendolyn Woods and Mario Woods' family and all the folks who work on the Justice for Mario Woods campaign, as well as many other folks who have been victims of police violence and state violence, which is... The number continues to grow. I'm taking a bit of a break. It's hard to do a break here on the radio. We're a an audio medium here, so um, just wanting to take it all in, take in that um, everything that's that's happening and has happened. Oh, there is a lawsuit against the SFPD. There were uh, years ago. Uh, it was discovered there were racist and homophobic texts exchanged among San Francisco police officers, in addition to them murdering people or killing people. I believe is the language that one is supposed to use. 
if they haven't been found guilty. And now there's a, a lawsuit against the SFPD. And I haven't prepared that article ahead of time. I'm just thinking of it now in terms of continuing along this line if we have a segue of reporting on stories in in uh, a way that continues on in a in a linear fashion and while i look for this i think we should play another song so let's see if we can find the other song i was looking for earlier and let's see if this we can hear this at all and it may be the video itself i think that we're having difficulty with so i'm gonna look for something else to play and Bear with me one moment here. Another. Uh, this is from uh, Star Amarasu, a uh, local artist here. Um, please do support Star. There's a channel on SoundCloud where you can purchase and listen to Star's music. If you go to soundcloud.com forward slash Star Amarasu, and that's S T A R A M E R A S U. And here is one song called On, and we'll be back uh, after this.
Welcome back. That was Tracy Chapman with Tell Like It Is. I've been wanting to play that song for weeks now. Glad we got a chance to today. And that's off the album, New Beginning. Ah, welcome back to the radio show, <laughs> the weekly review. Thanks again so much for listening. If you like what you hear, I mean, I don't necessarily like what I hear because a lot of it's depressing. However, if you appreciate the news being told in a way, uh, uh, how do I, I don't know. How do you market this? I can't market it. I tr- will try. Thanks again for the folks who support the show. Um, By all means, please spread the word. Tell folks about it. We do have a Patreon account set up to help cover dues, as well as anything else you can uh, contribute. I, you know, volunteer my time to do this because I believe it has to be done. It's really important to get the truth out there. And I'm grateful to have the platform to do this. If you are able to contribute, uh, please do so. Anywhere from a dollar a month and more is helpful, you can go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Again, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. And again, thank you to all the folks who donate. Thank you to all the folks who listen. I understand that not everyone's able to donate. So again, I want to provide this to as many people as possible. So if you can contribute in any way, um, that'd be wonderful. Mutiny Radio is a space here in the Bay Area. I'll do a little plug about this also a note we're on Ohlone land so recognizing that and the land that we're on um if you're interested in um having a show here uh there are spots available please contact pam at mutinyradio.fm if you go to the website you can find the contact information uh, there's a lot of shows here every day of the week there's music there's comedy there's spoken word poetry politics more things than I can possibly imagine. So if you'd like to do a show here of your own, uh, you pay monthly dues, you get trained, and you get two hours a week to do any type of show you like. Also, if you're interested in doing maybe a one-time rental, there are spots available, I believe, Thursday and Saturday nights. You can also check the website to check in on the specifics of that. So if you want to do a concert here, a poetry reading, uh, an event, a fundraiser, by all means, that's we're also available for space rental here. And it's unfortunately that's difficult to come by. So if you're interested in that, please do get in touch with us. And also, I believe there's a AA meeting that's happening here Wednesday nights as well. It's not broadcast on the air, certainly. That would make it not so anonymous. However, if you're interested in coming to the station looking for a place to talk, that's one place you can come. So again, and thanks to all the folks who do their shows here. It's We try to run it as collectively as, as possible. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to move along. We do have a brief little This Day in History, which pops up. There's a great site called libcom.org, and that's L-I-B-C-O-M.org, and they have updates about a lot of things that I was never taught in school uh, or anywhere, (laughs) a lot of things that we might not hear about because, uh, of course, a lot of the folks who control the media and want to get their story out only tell us certain things or have a very skewed version of things. So I found this out this morning. I hadn't. I did not know this before. So today, on October 12th in 1919, okay, I wasn't around then, so maybe that's one of my excuses. However, we should all, you know, know our history and especially people's history. It's super important to learn to see patterns and to see how things go, how things got the way they got, and just to recognize what also just to celebrate what people have done in the past uh, to, you know, fight for themselves. So on this day in history, October 12th, 1919. 150 Royal Navy sailors mutinied and broke out of their ships at Port Edgar upon hearing they were being sent to the Baltic to fight against the Russian Revolution. The desertion prevented the first destroyer flotilla from departing 
from departing period that's the end of the sentence from departing so um didn't know about that that's pretty incredible again go to libcom.org for more historical facts and things that we might not have heard elsewhere i did mention before we started playing music that the 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 sfpd was being sued again it's a thing that happens a lot to a lot of police departments we don't want to single out the sfpd although we are in san francisco so maybe that's what we'll do here they're being sued again from october 4th the aclu is suing them aclu sues san francisco police department for unconstitutionally targeting black people for arrest and the ACLU, they do, uh, they do many, you know, lots of good work. They also do things I, I disagree with. A lot of other people disagree with, such as, you know, defending Nazis and giving them the right, you know, like, oh, right to free speech and the right to march and cause terror. And it was like the ACLU, I believe, of, of Northern Virginia, or I don't know if it's Northern Virginia, it was Virginia, that I should clarify that, um, who before this, the initial march on Charlottesville last year the aclu gave them the the unite the right per the permit so there's and a few other things they also i think defended the rights of nazis to march in skokie illinois back in the 80s i believe um so the aclu is not always on the on the right side of things there's a great onion headline from many years ago aclu defends nazis rights to burn aclu down and that's so wanting just to be provide a, and, and I guess we're all biased in our own way, but just a clearer version that there's no, everything is, is complicated. And so, yeah, it was the ACLU of Virginia who represented the alt-right in Charlottesville, where people died, where Heather Heyer died. So that's, I can't, you know, it's, okay. So anyway, just wanted to provide, it's it's not always super clear about these things about these organizations and we can't always, and we also need to like, you know, hold them accountable. All right. So the ACLU, however, is suing the SFPD. San Francisco, the American Civil Liberties Union of the ACLU of Northern California, um, which is different than the ACLU of Virginia, of course, and the law firm Dury Tangri LLP filed a lawsuit against the city of San Francisco for its police department's racially discriminatory enforcement practices in violation of the constitution of the SFPD which has long, which has a long and sordid history of racial discrimination targeted black people for the arrest because of their race. In 2013, the SFPD teamed with the Drug Enforcement Administration to target black people for selling small amounts of drugs in the Tenderloin District when it was well known to the police department that people of many different races engage in drug sales in that neighborhood. Of the 37 people arrested and prosecuted in federal court, all were black. The SFPD's history of racially discriminatory law enforcement is well-documented and still inadequately addressed, said Novella Coleman, staff attorney at the ACLU of Northern California. Multiple studies, some commissioned by the city itself, have consistently documented the tolerance of racist policing by the department, and yet it has failed abysmally to take the appropriate and meaningful steps to reform its lawful ways. The black individuals targeted on the basis of their race had their lives upended and were separated from loved ones. The targeting of plaintiffs by the SFPD violated the guarantee of equal protection of the laws and demonstrates, yet again, the systemic failures across many law enforcement agencies regarding their treatment of people of color. Targeting individuals for arrest and criminal prosecution based on the color of their skin is indefensible, and the numbers are the numbers here, 37 out of 37, speak for themselves, said Darlene Dury, founder of Dury Tangri LLP. The SFPD is continuing a disturbing historical trend, not just in San Francisco, but across the country, of selectively targeting people for arrest and prosecution based on their race, race said Ezekiel Edwards, 
director of the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. By singling out black people for enforcement among people of other races, police departments not only offend the Constitution they have sworn to uphold, they perpetuate this nation's shameful legacy of racial discrimination. The lawsuit filed today, and again, this was on October 4th, seeks to hold the city of San Francisco accountable for its police department's racially discriminatory arrests, which were made possible through the city's indifference to its long-standing unconstitutional practices. By doing so, the ACLU is hopeful that these practices, which should have never existed in the first place, will end. So, that is happening. <sighs> All right. And let's move. That's also a lot there to take a pause, I suppose, after each and every news story. (sighs) There's definitely much more to get to. Um, It's difficult to, it's, we're at the 1256. The show ends, we usually end about 10 to 2 to get ready for the next show, which is Women's Magazine with Global Val. Followed (laughs) words. I can probably speak a little bit slower. And the Common Thread Collective, which is also happening today on Friday. So please do stay tuned for those shows. And if you're interested in coming through, the Common Thread Collective from 3 to 5, 3 to 6-ish is uh, an open mic of sorts. So there's music, there's poetry, spoken word. Um, A lot of folks come in for interviews. People call in. The show's been going on for quite a while. It's a really great collection of people. So if you're interested and want to share work, art, whatever you want, um, please do call in. Our number is 415-550-0511. And or you can also come in person. We're on the corner of 21st and Florida. We're on the ground floor. There's no stairs, so it is accessible in that regard. Please do uh, come by if you can. Great. All right. And all right, so we got to the strike. We got to, okay, so I have a few other headlines and I feel like I want to get to uh, much more. There's, we never quite can get to everything, of course, in a two hour show once a week. And there's so much happening and so much to report on and try to, and some shows definitely are more in certain areas than others. We'll, We'll see what we can get to. There's a hunger strike. A hunger strike threatened at Orange County jails over the whole. Now, in August, there started the 2018 prison strike, and we were giving updates there. And I also about that. And I also have been reading from the um, site um, Industrial Workers of the World, um, the IWOC, which is um, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. Um, which is like the prisoner-led section of the IWW. So they were providing updates as well. And let's, I'm going to go to their their site right now and see what we can read as well as I'll probably, yes, I'm speaking out loud. There's a lot. I think there's also just a lot to process, a lot to witness. All of this is happening. It's happening simultaneously. It's a state violence. This is violence that's been going on for generations. It's systemic. It's hap- it's It started before any of us got here. What can we do to stop it? Can we hold it accountable? Can we change it? Can we end it? And how do we survive in the meantime? Because it's not easy to know that so many folks are going through this at the moment. I'm still thinking of like ICE, another call to fucking abolish ICE, easier said than done, of course, and also sending a lot of love and solidarity to all the folks who have been protesting. And again, it's direct action. When folks were protesting outside and occupying space outside the ICE headquarters here in San Francisco, they shut down, they halted all deportations in Northern California for a week. It was direct action that did that. It wasn't voting. It wasn't any representatives. It was people going out there, putting their bodies on the line. 
So again, sending lots of love and solidarity to the folks out there who do are and are involved in direct action and those who support them. And now there's a, the big elections coming up in November 6th and a lot of folks are in, oh gosh, you got to get to that. Voter suppression in Georgia, thousands of people, ugh, okay. Th- things are messy. going to be <laughs> just, uh, however, we're calling it out. So the thing with voting, I view voting as harm reduction. I think there's definitely some local issues that can be super helpful, like voting yes on Prop C, vote yes on Prop 10, yes on Prop E. We'll get to some more later. And at the same time, recognizing that direct action is what gets the goods. And I I get that there's a lot of pressure put on people to vote. And I also understand why folks don't vote or don't have trust in voting. And also just the, the fact that not everyone's vote is even counted and not everyone can even make it to the polls safely. And they make it really hard to vote. So wanting to, to call that into wanting to bring that to folks attention too and if there is as much if as many folks were as adamant about ensuring that folks can engage in direct action whether that be boycotts protests strikes any of the above um in addition uh to the idea of voting i feel like things would move a lot further along because as we read in the article before that's what has gotten people rights. It's not just any lawmaker deciding to be friendly for once or, Oh, now I'm a little bit more open-minded. Thanks. It really is people taking to the streets. And again, yeah, you know, voting can help in some ways, but it's really people's behavior. And also, uh, what's legal isn't always what's right. And a lot of the times it's not, it's kind of backwards. When we look at mass incarceration, how many millions of people are incarcerated for things that haven't harmed anybody while there are war criminals. That's my big thing. I'm definitely a prison abolitionist. And if folks say, well, what about people who are dangerous? Yeah, they're the ones running this fucking country. They're the ones who started these private prisons in the first place. Some of these folks are in law enforcement. Some of these folks are politicians. Some of these folks are sitting on the Supreme court. So if you're locking up folks, for growing a plant, if you're locking up folks for doing sex work, things that do not have, like things that are victimless, they're not even, in my opinion, they're not even crimes. You're locking up people, many people are locked up for self-defense. People are locked up for reasons that, for being in, living in poverty. Homelessness is criminalized here. So you have folks who are simply locked up because the law says so. And because there's discriminatory practices in law enforcement, that's also how law enforcement was founded. Yet you have people who are running the country and creating these laws who are actually causing the harm themselves, and they're not in jail. That's why I'm a prison abolitionist. All right. Didn't mean to go off on that rant. However, that's, <laughs> that's where I went. That's where I went with it. So please do check out incarceratedworkers.org. There's lots of information here. There's, about, there's information about... Uh, uh, local committees, campaigns, news, resources, ways to get involved, more information on the prison strike. There's just so much information. And again, there's so much that we don't know. I'm still learning every single day, every single day, occasionally, not very often, because I, I get a little bit, I don't necessarily like to hear my own voice, uh, but I will go back and I have heard like previous episodes or clicked on, I'm like, what was it, what was happening a few years ago? And you like every, every single day I learn something more. Every time I talk to somebody new or someone who not new. I learn more. I hope to expand my perspective, change my language a bit, change my understanding of history being brought up in, the, in this country. There is so much propaganda. There is so much unlearning and toxic behaviors that we have to unlearn. And I'm also speaking out to white folks who may be listening. So much we have to undo and change. 
and as far as like also the media goes and news and movies and just how and just so much has to change and it's up to us to change it and i do believe we can that's optimistic so the last update on the incarcerated workers page was from september 16th which was a while ago, uh, prison-assisted drug overdoses, TDCJ, is amongst many state and federal prisons affected by the deadly K2 epidemic. So there's an article about uh, staff complicity in, snug- in smuggling drugs into the prisons. And also, um, the author is facing continuing retaliation and harassment for writing and organizing. So there are ways you can, there's a lot of phone zaps that happen. So also, please do check out incarceratedworkers.org for ways to participate in phone zaps, to um, put pressure on folks working in prisons, to let them know that the folks who are incarcerated are supported. I'm going to get to this article here. I've said a lot today. There's a lot. The world's a mess. And we have the power to change it. Getting the word out. From OC Weekly. I don't really read from OC Weekly too often. It's Orange County. Um, hunger strike threatened at Orange County jails over the hole. And this came out on October 11th from Matt Coker. There will be a hunger strike at Orange County jails next Wednesday, October 17th. So that was, yes, that will be next Thursday to peacefully protest extremely inhuman and tortuous practices by the Orange County Sheriff's Department, according to an online post. But the OCSD, which operates the jails, knows of no such hunger strike, according to Public Information Officer Carrie Braun. Hunger strikers from every race and background and at all county jails facilities will protest over indefinite solitary isolation, claims a long letter on the Facebook page, OC Sheriff's Torture. Organizers claim that for punishment, inmates who violate jail rules are placed in cells with no windows called the hole, where it is recommended no one stay for more than 30 days, but that in some cases, people have remained for years. Indefinite solitary isolation has already been widely condemned, challenged, and abandoned by California Department of Corrections, and for good reason, simply because it is severe torture, states the letter. Organizers allege the OCSD has ignored studies showing indefinite solitary isolation is harmful. Suicidal behaviors, self-mutilation, severe hallucinations with panic, anxiety, and sleep deprivation are just some of the psychiatric effects of solitary isolation, claim the protesters. Accusing the OCSD of having somewhere lost its professional ethic and moral compass, organizers note that this will be the second hunger strike in two months over the hole. They demand that anyone who has remained in the hole for more than 30 days be released immediately and be returned to their normal cells. Records on how long inmates have spent in the hole should be given to human rights organizations and the Orange County Board of Supervisors to monitor any possible abuse, say hunger strikers, who add, of course we're not expecting anything more than denials and or finger pointing from you, but we are hoping. And they have the full letter letter here, which I will read. Stand up to torture. From Wednesday, October 17th, 2018, a mass hunger strike will begin. People in all Orange County jail facilities from every race and background, they say male and female, I'm going to add all genders, uh, will be participating in this hunger strike to peacefully protest extremely inhuman and torturous 
practices by the Orange County Sheriff Department indefinite solitary isolation. In this case, we are focusing on the most cruel version of it created by this Sheriff Department, which is very illegal and absolutely un-American, indefinite solitary isolation in the hole. The holes are extreme isolation and deprivation sections within jails. They are designed for punishment only, up to 30 days maximum. A whole disciplinary isolation unit is a stripped-down to nothing, ghostly, silent, windowless, four-walled concrete shoebox to start with. People in violation of the jail rules, such as smoking tobacco, may be placed in the holes, but not more than 30 days maximum. Here, in some cases, people have been left in the hole by the sheriff for years. Yes, you read correctly, years. In many other cases, this sheriff department has routinely housed people in the hole for months and months straight. Indefinite solitary isolation has already been widely condemned, challenged, and abandoned by California Department of Corrections, and for good reason, simply because it is severe torture. Countless prominent and highly credible people and organizations with intimate knowledge of this subject, some through their own personal experiences, have heavily condemned this practice. Also, Extensive studies have been done on this subject, yet not only the Orange County Sheriff Department has decided to ignore all of that, along with things like common sense or logic, they also have gone ahead and created their own ultimate torture chamber in the hole, in addition to the use of indefinite solitary isolation in their jails. Suicidal behaviors, self-mutilation, severe hallucinations, withdrawal, panic, anxiety, and sleep deprivation are just some of the psychiatric effects of solitary isolation. Please note these effects were not recorded under indefinite solitary isolation or its most extreme version in the whole. Can you imagine the intensity level of the effects under those circumstances? Everyone from Senator John McCain, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, to Nelson Mandela, the, the, yeah, the United Nations, and so many other greatly credible people and organizations have strongly condemned such inhumane practices. Some of those people, like the late Senator McCain, have experienced it firsthand for themselves. McCain spent over two years out of the five in solitary isolation as a POW during the Vietnam War, and it's no secret how he felt about that. It is not hard to imagine how he would feel about this happening right here in his own country. Somewhere along the line, this sheriff department has lost its professional ethical and moral compass, especially in places off-limit to the outside world, places they are in complete control, places they are protected by deep secrecy, barbed wire, concrete walls, and closed doors, and places where there is easy prey. When integrity and professionalism take a backseat to ego-driven men in uniform and complete control, bad things usually happen, sometimes in the worst ways. Unchecked power is dangerous. Of course, there are many, many true professionals here who neither condone or participate in this terrible kind of behavior, but all of them stay silent. We see it every day. It is hard to go against the grain, especially when you wear the same uniform as your colleagues. Ask any grunt in military, and he will tell you the same. At the end of the day, practice and culture in any organization starts and ends with its leadership. This ship has no rudder and has been drifting. Some of the things they do in these jails are absolute and has been drifting. Some of the things they do in these jails are absolutely un-American and a disgrace to the country's values and laws, not to mention their own policies and rules. The list is long. Throughout this entire world, this great country... Okay. Um, they, uh, okay, I'm going to end with reading there. You can continue reading it at the OCWeekly.com. I have my own perspective on it. I, I support the folks striking. I do have my own concerns about considering the U.S. to be this quote-unquote beacon of democracy when we know that the history of this country... Um, has been through genocide and slavery 
And that's from the very beginning. So we see that behavior continue. And I also have my qualms about John McCain. So I will leave it at that. If you would like to read the letter in full, there's a lot more here. And again, I do support the folks striking. Um, please check out the article. Again, it's from OC Weekly and it was written by Matt. The article itself was written by Matt Coker. And again, to support folks who are incarcerated, please do check out incarceratedworkers.org. I think I'm just about ready for a song. And that article made me think of another song, which I've been wanting to play for a while. And I'm going to switch microphones here um, as I get this other song up. And it'll take me just a moment. Again, you're listening to Mutiny Radio.fm. This, this show is called The Weekly Review. Thanks so much for listening in. Um, yeah. I, I, I sometimes usually don't talk as much on the show. However, that's the way the show is going today. Um, I guess I will provide a plug for other news sources. The Intercept, uh, it's going down which is an anarchist site at sub.media, also collecting anarchist media and news as well. There's, and there's a lot more. So I'm going to go play another song here. Uh, stay tuned, and we'll be back in a bit.
extraña a nuestra querida isla, hermana, camarada, solidaridad, ya, ya. Hey. Pero estoy cansado Hasta cuando aceptamos seguir como esclavo No quiero vivir comiendo miga No quiero llorar por nuestra vida Si no luchamos no sobrevivimos If we don't struggle we die in my people Hasta cuando compañeros vamos a seguir siendo Lo que olvida la tortura el infierno Yo no quiero colonización Solo quiero liberación Don Pedro Albizu lo dijo mejor No importa ser fuerte si no hay valor We must be brave, united hermanos South Bronx to the north of Chicago Mad love to la isla del encanto Ghetto brothers, take it out with the canto Dear Benji, since you've been gone Been hit with a terrible storm the guns is drawn the war is on and we still don't know what side we on we've been fighting for pound water they stopped our supplies at borders our nights is hard rosario's daughter had a baby on the couch in the flood of the corner of the house maria blew the hood and the fucking roof out the president be saying see he bugged the fuck out we hungry like wild wolves foaming from the mouth everything's gone now it's really on now The roots of the trees of the land that you love has only been torn out. Yeah, Hunts Point to Humble Park, rubbing up PR, wasn't far but off, had it in my heart. Una vida internacional, amor a toda la diáspora. Oscar un mito, un paseo boricua, escuchando historias sobre Lolita, bate urbano organizando en los barrios de Chicago. Luego Filiberto asesinado, en New York the feds went wild. Sopinas investigaciones, knocking the doors of a few of the homies. No cooperamos colonizadores, nunca hablamos con los opresores. Oye, defend the PR hasta la muerte. With my brothers, we're the yellow Benji, yo.
review that was magnetic fields with andrew and drag before that we heard uh having some difficulty here getting everything in front of me so i can read it clearly that was uh, viva puerto rico libre um from rebel diaz you can find that at rebeldiaz.bandcamp.com and before that peter gabriel we do what we're told mograms 37 i'm feeling a bit worn out i haven't quite gotten to everything Perhaps I'll share a few headlines, and if you have the energy and the interest, by all means, please do uh, find more information out there of a lot that's happening. (sighs) I've read that Ford is uh, (laughs) firing 20,000 workers, laying off 20,000 workers. So that's, again, another feature of late-stage capitalism, people losing their jobs. And we're having some technical difficulties right now, so it's taking just a little bit of time. Another another piece, uh, a journalist from the Washington Post was killed in Saudi Arabia, and there's more and more investigation on that. If you check out Washington Post, they should have some more updates. Um, again, vote for prop yes on Prop C, yes Prop 10, yes on Prop E, um, which is on the ballot November 6th here in San Francisco. Uh, let's see. There's a lot more. There's a many. There's lots of reports of voter suppression, especially in Georgia. And one of the contenders, I believe, for the governor is the one who's doing the suppressing, and because he's probably going to lose, and that's why it's happening. So there's also reports of that, and lots of reports of voter suppression and like needing the right ID IDs, and that seems to be a constant, uh, recurring theme with voting. Oh, there's a proposal for the White House to close the protest area near the White House. So let's think of other ways to go and get around that, everyone. I have a lot of ideas. I don't speak them out on the air. I speak a lot of what I think on the air. 
some of my opinions, which also change as we all do change. And uh, a lot of things I don't say on the air. However, I believe in the collective unconscious. And even if we're not saying things out loud, we can all maybe visualize something and perhaps maybe visualize about other things uh, about direct action. And there was a video I saw briefly the other day that I wanted to, like I thought it would be cool and educational to play the audio for. So we're looking for that at the moment. It might take... Um, it might take a moment to to pull it up here. And again, really just operating on. Today was a very busy week, um, so I didn't quite get a chance to prepare as much as I would like. I hope folks were able to uh, learn a bit today. I learned a lot today and share information with other folks as well. And I'm going to look here. I guess we should. Yeah, this is, uh, again, from Submedia. And I'm going to let it up here. And yes, I believe it is playing. So Submedia is another place you can go for information, videos, podcasts, etc. Sub.media is how you find it online. So that's a thing. All right. We're going to play this now. And this, this is going to be the audio. Um, the audio component of this. I'm going to turn off the music in the background. And all right. And if you want to watch the, if you're able to see the video footage, you can check that out here. <sighs> All right. And I'll, I'll check in towards the end. I'm going to take a bit of a breather. I've been going nonstop. Um, also, yesterday happened to be coming out day. So, and again, someone were really, I mean, a lot of folks have been writing their stories and I appreciate that. I also, am many, <sighs> coming out, the thing is, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continuing process. It happens every time you meet someone. And also identities change and it's identities are fluid. And so, and I also recognize the importance of folks, you know, who feel the need to, to speak out about it and also recognize that it's not safe for everyone to at all times. So there's a lot more I want to say about it. And perhaps if I can find it by the end of the show, no promises, I'll, I'll read this quote that I really liked, but it was along those lines that it's a continuing process. It's not always safe. It's not, people aren't always able to come out. And I do also want to share lots of love and support to all the folks, my queer family out there who it's, and it's interesting even when we read the Howard Zinn's take on the Supreme court and a lot of other, you know, views on how folks have been treated. And there's really, hasn't been as much of a, you know, queer oral history. I know that there are folks who do that. It's just, it's difficult to know what you've been through if folks have been unable to share, to share the history. And I think that's true for a lot of folks as well, um, for a lot of opp oppressed groups and for identities. I have a lot more to say. I am losing steam. It's been a, there's been a lot to talk about today. So I'm gonna sit and process it. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna play this video uh, so stay tuned, and we'll be back in about half an hour. Given the relatively dominant position that hip-hop occupies atop the dizzying heights of the global entertainment industrial complex, it can be easy to lose sight of its humble beginnings and its enduring role as a source of revolutionary politics. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. I know this for a fact. You don't like how I Call 
Call me Little Bobby Hutton, cause I'm first to push the button. Rappers don't be saying nothing to the system, we say fuck them. Por eso decimos fuck, por eso hacemos hip hop. No nos importa tu placa, tu metralla ni tu glob. Tu mente en shock, fucking police, stop. Recuerda que el tiempo pasa y nunca para en el clock. Though it didn't really break out until the late 70s and early 80s, hip-hop's genesis story began in the summer of 1973 in the South Bronx. At the time, New York City's northernmost borough was, by all appearances, a war zone. Decades of neglect, ill-thought-out public infrastructure projects, white flight, racist redlining policies, and urban decay had reduced entire city blocks to rubble. Rampant poverty and unemployment had created a vacuum that was filled by street gangs with hundreds of small crews constantly battling over territory and literally setting large sections of the city on fire. Out of this simmering cauldron of social and economic tension, hip-hop emerged as a vibrant DIY subculture spread through house parties thrown by working-class, Black and Puerto Rican youth who were alienated and excluded from New York's decadent disco scene. A catalyzing moment of the emerging hip-hop scene was the formation of the Universal Zulu Nation on November 12, 1973. Founded by members of a gang called the Black Spades, the Zulu Nation built hip-hop into a tool for community organizing, bringing members of different gangs together, settling street-level beefs, and introducing codes of conduct, all while imbuing the scene with formative political values of street-based community solidarity and pan-African consciousness. The Zulu Nation is credited with constructing the foundation of hip-hop culture, forged around five core elements, MCs, DJs, graffiti, b-boys and b-girls, and the fifth element, street knowledge. But then I got wise, and I begin to listen to the whack teachers in the wick-wack system. My mother put me in ways to shoot in the decades that have followed, hip-hop has been transformed into a global phenomenon and a multi-billion dollar industry in its own right. But the five foundational elements have survived and adapted over the years, providing a sustained authenticity that has allowed radical artists to continue to innovate, carve out space, and even fight back against the industry's overall creep towards commercialization. Over the next 30 minutes, we will explore hip-hop as a potent and persistent source of revolutionary culture rooted in the oppression, exploitation, and criminalization faced by youth, and particularly poor youth of color. Along the way, we'll speak with a number of grassroots artists who are continuing to spit truth to power all while organizing their communities, tearing up stages, and making a whole lot of trouble. One for the revolution, two for the flow. If the great boys are dancing, you should probably go. If the MCs and DJs be rocking to foe, and the craft writers getting up, you already know. And yo, one for the revolution, two for the flow. If you see 12 coming, you should run, run, Joe. Matter of fact, run fast, bro, don't run, run slow. They want to get you in the case, since you already know. Hip-hop stands for his or her infinite power helping oppressed people. That comes from the temple of hip-hop, okay? So that's from 
you know, OGs like KRS-One and other people getting together and figuring out how to effectively uplift the more positive elements of the culture that are based in community liberation and empowerment. Hip hop to me is a way to be able to spread a message of resistance to a larger audience. Hip hop to me is a way to share my story before anybody else has a chance to twist up my words or to twist up my experiences. It's resistance and creativity. That's what hip hop is to me. Hip hop initially rose up speaking to injustices. Eventually it rose into the stories speaking to the issues uh, of the oppressed. The early days was very humble. It wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't a big budget. Uh, it was kind of put together by people with whatever they had. People had come up with this medium of going through the rubble and putting graffiti up and break dancing and emceeing and DJing. And you know, it, it was a way of resistance. The same youth that were throwing bricks and rocks and pushing back the police, they, they have something to say. Para mí el hip hop es una herramienta de transformación, es una cultura que contiene unos principios de vida, este, principios que incluyen la unidad, el respeto, el amor, pero sobre todo también la diversión, como esta necesidad de defender la alegría. Hay una frase de Grandmaster Cass, de un DJ, él menciona que el hip hop no inventó nada, lo reinventó todo. We peep the allegory of the campfire listening. Elders share the stories of the vampire's victims. How do I not make the same mistake? Wisdom generate the vision, obliterate the prison. Freedom's all I wanted, but I couldn't afford it. My baby's got the spirit, just brilliant and gorgeous. So oh, yes, the self-defense endorsement. Always a quiet when no she about to load it. Hold it. It's a more about to load it. Oh shit. And the whole body of support it. Seen a whole lot of people want friends. Seen a whole lot of people want bands. Seen a whole lot of people can't get what they want. So a whole lot of people pops dance. They say the means don't justify the ends. Do the ends ever justify the means? And when we end all of this hardship, if we just put rich pickets in the guillotine. Cause I can't watch these kids die and then lie like I give a fuck and not do a fucking thing. But lie down like I give enough. So get a gun if you're ready. We gripping on the machete for anybody. Involved, we got a problem for getting. Pensas por cuenta propia, es un lujo que cuesta caro. A ellos no les conviene que te separes del ganado. Más ganan ellos si los mantienen desinformados. Una tierra empobrecida y más fuerza para el Estado. Fuck the parliament, fuck the cops, and fuck the robber baron bosses, and fuck they offices. Predominant model of economics, and elephant cock in they ballot boxes. It came from the Bronx in the 70s in New York City, and now it's worldwide. Hip hop is like folk music. It's very much a historical record. These are stories that are very telling of the American empire, you know, looking from within. And I think that's why it's so compelling, and that's why it resonated. People may not know it, but I think the reason that hip hop spread is because there's stories that everyone needs to hear and is interested in hearing. Hip hop es una cultura universal que parte de un contexto de marginación, de empobrecimiento, de criminalización, que es un contexto muy específico que sucedió en los años 70 en Nueva York, pero que tiene similitudes con otras problemáticas en otros territorios por los temas justo de explotación, de encarecimiento de la vivienda, de, de la falta de oportunidades. It came from people who had been displaced historically from the continent of Africa to North America to Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. It also came from ethnicities that had been mixed in the process of the colonial subjugation and conquest of the so-called New World. 
that was significant to drawing me in because we learned that we had a shared story. We had a, a story of not only oppression, but resistance. We can measure history in terms of what we know about our experience here in the United States, the descendants of people who were stolen from the continent of Africa. But we also have to be able to measure our existence and, and, and our influence on what happened before that, what's currently happening in the African diaspora and on the African continent, struggles for liberation and self-determination. Driving force is just the songs of my ancestors, the songs that they sung to be able to speak to resistance, to speak to fighting, to speak towards challenging and removing any and all people that wish to uh, destroy our people. Some of the major influences that I've had musically have been folks who share their narratives in a really honest way, in a really vulnerable way, especially when they go to represent their anger and their rage with the way that these systems of oppression are set up around us. I recognize first and foremost that I am a guest in the house of hip hop. I don't take someone else's experience and try to whiteify it. I see things through the lens of white people. And so I feel like it's like my job to criticize white culture in the way that a white dude can. And so I use my music to confront the shittiest parts about white culture, uh, imperialism and colonialism and capitalism and authoritarianism. Although it has since spread all around the globe, hip-hop first emerged from and has always remained rooted in the lived experiences of Black and Latina youth hustling to survive in America's inner-city ghettos. And the so-called golden age of hip-hop spanning the late 80s to the mid-90s were especially turbulent times. The flooding of poor, racialized neighborhoods with crack in the mid-80s provided the spark for a rapid surge in street violence waged between increasingly well-funded and heavily militarized gangs. This, in turn, provided the justification for the ramping up of Ronald Reagan's War on Drugs, a policy framework for the wholesale criminalization of black and brown communities that opened the door to enhance police repression and mass incarceration, twin pillars of U.S. domestic counterinsurgency strategy that continue to this day. In 1986, a group formed in South Central LA that fed off this raw sense of desperation and rage, forever changing the face of hip-hop in the process. That group was NWA, the first successful pioneers of a new subgenre of hip-hop, gangster rap. These days, it's hard to appreciate the shock and terror that NWA provoked in America's white supremacist power structure, and especially its frontline troops, the cops. Rap music promotes, by its very language and by its very actions, promotes violence against authority and consequently violence against law enforcement. Songs like Fuck the Police became rallying cries for a generation of black and brown youth whose rage would soon find popular expression in the L.A. riots of 92. <laughs> But while NWA provided a megaphone to black youth's widespread hatred towards the police, they also injected mainstream hip-hop with a violent strain of misogyny and homophobia that continues to fester to this day. They also provided the emerging hip-hop industry, largely controlled by the white capitalist power structure that they were rebelling against, an opportunity to make millions of dollars selling records that glorify black and brown youth killing one another over nothing. 
a lot of the brothers that were my same age, man, they were involved in the type of shit where they were killing each other, you know? They were killing cats they grew up with, that they, that they went to church with, that they went to school with, that they played ball with, trying to be part of the, uh, the whole gang set culture, you know what I mean? And, or they were, they were trying to get their money selling that dope and like, that's cool, whatever, but really? No future in the gang slinging cane is proven. I lost real good friends behind the 90s shooting. I was living during the crack era. And so the criminalization that began this whole mass incarceration that we have now, this new Jim Crow, it was heavily, heavily going on during that crack era all the way through the 90s. And so, of course, the theme in the music was about either fighting against this new you know, drug that was dropped onto our community or using it as a means to get out of the community. So it's always been a part of the, the music from the, from the very early days. Partamos primero como justo de la frase de lo personal es político, porque aunque pensemos que nuestros actos son individuales, van a tener una repercusión también en nuestra familia, en nuestro grupo cercano, y así en la comunidad y en la sociedad de la que somos parte. There's a difference between telling your story and glorifying some of the things that you have to do to get by. So I appreciate, you know, when artists can, you know, yeah, maybe talk about the gang banging past, talk about, you know, the past where you had to, to sell some shit, you had to do some shit that you're glad you don't have to do anymore. Government plans, fencing us in, life in the pen. For selling shit you put in our hood, knowing that do it. We desperate starving and dying to eat, dying the street for a fraction of what I get now for sounding fly on the beat. I feel the weight of not glorifying some of the things I've done in my past because I see it happening with other artists, with their songs. Cold gang with the cocaine. Cold. The more money make more rain. Pouring up a paint while I'm back in propane. Bang. Point blank range, give a nigga nose range. Skip to my loot with the pack and the cat. Jiffy, loot with the bricks, where they at? In hip hop, they might call it bitches, hoes, guns, money, sex, murder, and all that. But if you look at the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and the US government, that's all it is. It's a reflection of the culture that we live in. It's the values that we've inherited as part of the conditions of survival in this country to prioritize the things that are gonna get us pussy, get us respect, and get us paid, and get another motherfucker to recognize us, you know? And that is some bullshit. It's been really motivational to me when artists cast aside all of the parameters of respectability politics and are willing to speak their truths without coddling the feelings of those who are oppressing us. That's the job of my music, the challenge of everything that's been imposed upon us, to say no and go drastic with it. Again, like I don't, I don't follow the format, the, the status quo of hip hop. I'm also still unlearning a lot because it wasn't like I, I grew up in, in the native community. I grew up in a city because of the fact that people that came generations before me were removed from their homelands and placed into, into cities. What you won't find me doing in my music, lyrically, you won't find me killing niggas. You won't find me on some exploitative, downgrading shit about women. You won't find me talking about killing faggots and faggot this and faggot that. There's lots of people saying fucked up shit in the world of hip hop. To me, I can't have that. You know, I, I'm not gonna throw a show where I book those guys or I can't do collabos with them. I can't work with them. I'm not going to sort of paint the work that I'm doing with this hate, right? Try to promote 
the kind of hip hop that I'd like to see. I work with people that are doing the kind of hip hop that I'd like to see. En el contenido que sea, hay un contexto político del que surge, porque hay una necesidad también de retomar nuestra historia y que a pesar de que no necesariamente va a ser como un activismo más marcado, sí hay una intención de sobrevivir a un contexto de violencia. I feel like it's extremely important that you are responsible and disciplined and mature enough to not abuse that platform, to be predatorial, to escape any kind of accountability for patriarchal tendencies. I learned early that I had to be three times better than the guys to even remotely get even recognized. And it made me already come out swinging and I never stopped swinging because I already recognized that I had a disadvantage. I was already seeing patriarchy and sexism. Whenever I do a show and I'm the only woman on the lineup, we have to call it out. We have to address the fact that I'm not the only woman there because I'm the, I'm the only woman with something worth saying, with something worth listening to. I'm the only woman there because we don't listen enough to the women around us and we don't give up the mic. Men don't give up the mic enough. Put my face in the book because my people are profile. Erased from the books and my people are told lies. Guys, the limit, go fly. Cali Green, we go high. I mean, black in 05, but in you, I grow wise. And my RSEI, do Zellu, is on when I wake up, no makeup, half naked, I feel like I'm the shit. Pardon my language, but hang-ups do not define the kid. No, I'm not flawless, I'm scarred up and I'm fine with it. My body are the laundry list of all of life's unkindnesses. Indigenous wisdom unheeded and sacred things depleted. A lot has changed in the 45 years since hip-hop's founding. For one thing, many of the iconic inner-city neighborhoods where hip-hop first flourished have been redeveloped. Their former communities scattered to the winds of gentrification. Far from the dilapidated pressure cookers of revolt and subversive urban decay that they were in the 70s, these neighborhoods have become homogeneous sites of high-rise condos, hipster indie venues, and Starbucks franchises. Which is not to say that this process is a done deal, and even less so that the social contradictions that birthed hip-hop have disappeared. The South Bronx is still a largely working-class area plagued by racist police violence, and there's tons of vibrant hip-hop coming out of America's traditional urban centers, from Baltimore to Oakland. Bum. The target of poverty by a white devil. Cause I wasn't testing at my written level. I was testing any of these busters. Where you from, body? Lola like, But as urban demographics have shifted, so too has hip-hop's center of gravity. In the United States, the shift has been most notable with the rise of Southern rap, beginning in the early 2000s and the emergence of Atlanta as a new hip-hop epicenter. Similarly, as it has spread to countries all around the world, hip-hop has been transformed and enriched by countless local culture and traditions, each of which has added their own mark, while generally honoring the spirit of youthful defiance and resistance to authority that's been so key to hip-hop's global appeal. Hip-hop culture is an expression of oppressed people's reality. 
Hip hop is so global now that literally every neighborhood, every community is representing. I see people doing hip hop in Palestine. BDF, يعني مقاطع هاي الطريقة اللي بستجم في تل أبيب زي اللي استجم في جنوب أفريقيا. Native artists are just really standing up globally and uh, representing and and telling a story that that really needs to be heard. And it reminds me of the early days of hip hop. It's not like packaged and pretty and fake. We just raw truth and raw facts. So big up to all my native comrades out there holding it down with hip hop. We never even knew what it was like to be poor until money was shown to us in the first place. We didn't know what poverty was. And so we're always trying to catch up to something that really we don't belong to, that in fact our culture is at odds with, our traditions are at odds with. Recordemos que mucha parte del arte también está elitizado, que solamente en ciertos sectores se, se genera o solamente desde ciertos lugares se valida. Sin embargo, el hip hop permite que desde las calles, desde los barrios, desde la marginación, se pueda crear y se pueda generar también estas voces. I feel like music is especially important in sharing political ideals with youth taking care of our people, to maintaining our identities. So it's, it's absolutely like foundational. What is black? Black is a, a response to white supremacist categorization of human beings. Something that doesn't even begin to encompass the vastness of history and cultural reality. When I'm in Zimbabwe, as an ambassador, if you will, for hip hop, I encounter people that are Shona, people that are Ndebele, people that are of these different cultural realities doing hip hop. South Africa is big right now with the resistance music. Yo, we've been colonized. It's not a lie. Working class is start to organize. I believe the masses will arrive. Revolution will rise and decolonize. It is time to mobilize. In was no talk of for people all over the continent to have taken hip hop, not in an exploitative, oppressive way, but in an empowering way. Taking black culture, born in the United States, created as a result of the separation from the continent of Africa, taking that back, reinterpreting it, and it being a bridge for black people all over the fucking planet Earth. That's a powerful thing, man. anti-establishment feelings that I had. It could have been harnessed by a million different things, but it was harnessed by good, radical politics, you know, through music. Music has an opportunity to word things, you know, that are hard to say. Music has a way of cutting through to the heart of something. It has the power to, to kind of uh, give voice to, to a situation or to paint a picture about a situation in a way that writing doesn't. Every time that you're doing the show, you have to carry that message regardless if it's like two people or 200 people or a thousand people in the crowd. I think smaller shows become more intimate, so you have an ability to be able to interact with people there and also be able to not just do the show and not just be the entertainment, but also have the conversation with people and, and talk more about resistance afterwards. I, I want to connect with people that are doing real work and doing radical work and doing revolutionary work, and I want to bolster their movements and I want to uh, use music to be involved in that. That's what I love most, you know, that when I get to play at an actual site of resistance. It's like taking it back to the to the roots of what the, the music was created for. The free shows we do for the, the youth, the ghetto youth, are always the most powerful shows because they don't have the constraints that the commercial shows do. The truth rests upon the lies. Our people have been traumatized. So Donald Trump no different than Barack Obama nor Ross. Yep. They are part of a system 
that wish we was gone. And history talks with forked tongues. So the misery goes on in this illegally occupied territory of death. A number of the shows that I ended up doing at outdoors at Stanley where I had the same kind of energy. It was, uh, it was powerful in uh, what that was uh, coming together at, you know, the spirit of resistance. And, and then, I mean, we've had a number of shows with just a bunch of kids on the res, the same kind of energy. We the survivors, we the uprisers, yeah, we the savages banging on the colonizer. Yeah, we the savages banging on the colonizer. We are finally facing the end of the cycle and end to the terror fueled by the Bible. Hay un montón de pueblos originarios que están haciendo rap en su lengua. Hay un montón de muralismo que se esté como intersectando entre el graffiti, o sea, digamos, en la técnica de aerosol y los códices antiguos, ¿no? Ahora ya hay como esa, esa nueva, esa, ese nuevo encuentro entre las culturas pasadas y las nuevas culturas, pero lo que permite el hip hop es poder volver a apropiar al contexto actual algo que se estaba perdiendo. There's a difference when I'm on a reservation or when I'm at like an inner city program doing a show for kids who might also be undocumented, you know, doing a show for like young women that have never been on stage but, you know, would like to be or, you know, have like poems that they want to write or whatever. It's so much more of a reciprocal occasion when it's folks who share, you know, identities. It's like one of the last things that we have is our ability to speak out. Even if we feel powerlessness, hip-hop makes us feel powerful. Island woman rise, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman rise, alamin ang yung ugat. They got nothing on us, nothing on us, nothing on us, nothing on us. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. Within revolutionary circles, oftentimes we can get bogged down in abstract theoretical debates and lost in what can seem like an endless cycle of protests, actions, and organizing campaigns. And while these engagements are essential and should not be dismissed, it's also important to keep in mind the vital role that culture plays in building effective movements of resistance. At the end of the day, capitalism and the state are not just material forces, but ideological systems as well. This is something our enemies are well aware of, which is why they devote so much time, energy, and resources towards creating propaganda, much of it masquerading as entertainment. From the countless high-budget TV shows and Hollywood movies glorifying police and the military, to music promoting frivolous consumerism, a look at the dominant forms of cultural production can tell you a lot about the values being promoted by the powers that be. But thankfully, we have the ability to fight back by producing and promoting subversive countercultures that promote our own values of solidarity, mutual aid, direct action, and antagonism to capitalism and the forces of the state. Let's not squander the opportunity. All right. So we, on that note, we are going to uh, wrap up the show here. And if you're interested in listening to, there's about 10 minutes left on this. If you would like to see, uh, there's also like a lot of video footage as well. I mean, it's a video that I'm playing. Please check out sub.media. It's under the video section. And this is trouble number 15. And you don't stop. If you'd like to hear this again in full and also see the video, that's great. Coming up next at 2 p.m., is a women's magazine with global val followed by the common thread collective so stay tuned to mutiny radio this is roman thanks so much for listening to the weekly review and we'll be back next week take care everybody
And you can't just preach to yourself. You can't just talk to yourself. You have to connect with people. If you want to make it, yeah, you can upload something to SoundCloud, but to get the full experience of the art and for people to, to hear you, to get exposure, you're going to have to go out there and perform, and you're going to have to go out there and link up with other people. Check, check, smack a testament dropper. I'm a Ruba Spectre. Been to my heart, the kid to Masada. Study it all, pass it to present, resurrect it. You have a duty if you're making radical music. You need to help build the foundation in your community for radical music to come in. So you have to help book the shows. You have to help find the spaces. You have to get the sound systems. You have to help facilitate that. You're not just making music and radical music. You need to help with fostering radical music community. The term is many hands make light work. We can get more done together than we can by ourselves in certain formats. And then sometimes less is more. Sometimes you have to cut dead weight and you have to step away from people who don't have the same priorities as you. And you have to be okay with doing that. También tienen que ser muy observadores y muy observadoras de su cotidiano. Voltear a ver qué es lo que está pasando, escuchar, abrir bien los oídos para ver qué cosa está sucediendo alrededor, porque la palabra también tiene una responsabilidad. Y si tú vas a enunciarla, también tiene que ser como desde esa honestidad de quién eres, desde dónde hablas. Y, y además te, te da también ese valor dentro de la comunidad. Nobody's going to do this for you. You know, look at the DIY ethic of punk music. It needs to be applied to hip hop more. And, you know, we need to do for ourselves and we need to build up our own spaces, our own community, our own networks. And we need to share that amongst each other. And, you know, everybody can rise together. The goal of my making music isn't to explain myself to someone who doesn't understand my background. The goal is to connect with the folks who share that same path and who find strength and healing in hearing their story being told, who you know may otherwise feel very much alone. It's cold because I can probably only speak to indigenous MCs based on indigenous message because for me I understand that talking about resistance, talking about decolonization, talking about revolution, whatever it may be, the average person does not like to hear the indigenous perspective, the true indigenous perspective of resistance because it challenges even their existence. Don't be afraid, don't cut yourself off and don't listen to people who say, this hasn't been done so you can't do it or it's weird and it's different. Some of our best artists were doing something that nobody else was doing before and it's okay. It's all right to not rap in the same cadence that everyone else is rhyming in. It's okay to mix your music with other genres. It's okay to be different and to not sound like everyone else. Sometimes people aren't going to function, you know, but stick with it because eventually what happens is after years and years, you get better at what you're doing, you get clearer about what you're doing, you learn from your mistakes, and when that is combined with a sustained sense of joy in relation to why and how you work, you're unstoppable. If you're going to try and build a radical current towards indigenous resistance, you can't waver. You can't switch up based on the fact that you're not getting support, you're not going to get support. There's gonna be so much stacked up against you. You have to be uncompromising because everything that you represent is problematic to the average person, even those people that suggest they support indigenous resistance. 
Stop inviting women to just the all-women events. Don't be embarrassed when we grab the microphone and rock it when you're in your circle full of guys. But people start to look at diversity in that way of inviting people to the table so that we all can break bread and all do this thing that we call our culture. It'll change. And if they don't open the door, break the fucking door down. Kick it open. These record labels slang, I change like dope. You can be next in line and sign and still be writing rhymes and wrote. You would rather have a Lexus or Justice, a dream or some substance, a beamer or a necklace or freedom. Still, nigga like me don't play a hate, I just stay awake. It's real, real hot.